Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. Uh, this week, actually buying a real drink for the show for once <laughs> <laughs> it's about time i've been waiting yes, sir we've been building up peaks every time We're like when is he finally gonna do it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now we've reached the completion of the arc you've completed us matt <laughs> uh and i'm cameron lalana uh this week well not this week today uh, i've just been really tired and reading a lot so every time i want to take a break from reading i go make a cup of coffee turns out four cups of coffee before you record a podcast episode in which you drink not a great idea because mm -hmm. I am on the verge of being like of, of having the shakes and I'm about to drink a cocktail. So we're going to see how this turns out. Maybe you'll transcend. You ever think about it? You ever think about that? Maybe you'll transcend. <laughs> I have not thought about it that way, which is actually I like that. I like that way of thinking about it. Yep. Well, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron transcend into Russian literature. Uh, <laughs> this week, uh, we're going to be continuing our Summer of Anna Karenina series with part three of the aforementioned Anna Karenina. If you are enjoying the podcast and if you enjoy the show, uh, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We have a lot of fun Patreon-only content and rewards, and it really helps us keep the show going. Uh, if you're not interested in Patreon at the moment, but you still want to support us in some other way, feel free to leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates. But before we get into the show today... Matt, what are you drinking? What's the real beer? I gotta know. Uh, well, the real beer is, <laughs> so not really a story, but it is called Tome by Half Acre Brewing here in Chicago. It's a hazy pale ale, and it is <laughs> the only craft beer at the grocery store I went to today that I had not tried for the podcast. Um, and it's the only one, I think, made by Half Acre at the moment that I haven't tried because I really do like their beer. Can we get a sponsorship from Half Acre? I feel like we've had them on for their, their beers for many episodes. They just don't, they, I don't know, they don't respond to me when I when I tag them <laughs> on Instagram like some of the other ones. So we'll see, Half Acre. Um, we'll see. If, you want to, if they want to sponsor us, I would take in-kind support. <laughs> yeah, we're willing to say a lot of untrue things in this podcast for money. Absolutely. <laughs> what, are, what are you drinking today? Uh, today, I am drinking... This is a strange one. So it's from a company called Livewire, which does cocktails. Uh, and this is apparently they're like they're just getting bartenders to make them cocktails. So this is called Golden God uh, by Aaron Polsky, uh, which is a combination of rye whiskey and brandy with apricot, green tea and elderflower. So wait, is this one of those like cocktails in a can? Yeah. Yeah. But huh. it's not it's not like a general cocktail. It's, a, I guess, Mr. Aaron Polsky's creation. Okay, that's cool. I yeah. yeah, I see those at the store a lot, but then I look at what the cocktail is, and I'm like, why do I want to buy canned like vodka and cranberry juice or whatever? Because <laughs> um, like I can make that myself. It's not that difficult. Yeah. Uh, but that sounds really good, actually. I would, I would, if you could send me some, I'll, uh, I, I'll give it a try. <laughs> yeah, I'll ship it. This is actually I've only taken a couple sips, but this is really pleasing. Actually, huh. it's like drinking. It's like one of those bottled teas you can get at the store. Yeah, yeah. Except it's seven point five percent. All right. Yeah. So let's transition from our hedonistic lifestyles into something a little bit more ascetic. <laughs> Anna Karenina Part 3. Yes. 
So as per usual, we're getting right into the summary before we analyze and neg Cliff's notes. I wanted to say Chegg for some reason. I like the rhyme. We're going to, well, Matt's going to neg Cliff's notes. Well, I'm going to neg Spark notes. Spark notes, excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll neg Cliff in his notes as well. <laughs> it's fine. We, we've negged Cliff's notes by forgetting that they're uh, different from Spark notes. <laughs> Take that. <clears throat> okay, so. Of course, in this story of adultery and Anna and her life and her feelings and her evolution of the book, we rejoin Levin, naturally, as he is on his farm, as per usual, uh, with his brother, Sergei Kosnyshev. And uh, Sergei, of course, is a professor, and he just wants to get out of the city for a while because he sees just moral rot all around him in the city. So he comes to the countryside, which is for him a place of leisure, He's enjoying the beauty of the environment. He's so happy to be here and, and enjoy the idleness of this life. Uh, he's, in, he's happy to talk to the peasants who he, see as moral, who he sees as morally superior to the, the city folk where he usually lives and you know, really brags to Levin that he knows how to talk to peasants. I, I don't know if, if Tolstoy is intentionally making fun of fathers and children, but it kind of reads that way. <laughs> this is like a old bazaar off. Levin, however, is not super jazzed that his half-brother is hanging out with him on his property. Mostly because Sergei's whole attitude towards the countryside is this place of, like, moral superiority and idleness and just a place of leisure and beauty is not what Levin sees when he sees his property. What Levin sees is, well, he sees his property. He sees the forest not for a place of beauty, but it's just, it's his backyard. It's where he it's where he collects mushrooms sometimes, or it's where his his peasants get their food or grow things or whatever, and... When he sees peasants, he doesn't see a morally superior breed. He just sees people. He, he lives with them. He doesn't know them as these are the peasantry. He knows them as that's Ivan. That's other Sergei, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> other Ivan. <laughs> um, and he, he's just kind of annoyed to have his brother there because his brother always wants to, to, to sit around and chat all day because he sees an idle lifestyle where, as Levin is, he's trying to do his work. He's trying to farm. He's trying to get things done. So when his brother wants to have a long breakfast, he's like, I really would have liked to have just had some cabbage soup at like 6 a.m. to get out to the field or something. But of course, because his brother's there, he's got to stay there until 10 or 11, just eating and chatting. Dude, this guy loves his cabbage soup. That's like, that's all he thinks about. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I wish I loved anything as much as Levin loves cabbage soup. Yeah, literally. In the evenings, Levin wants to work on his book about, about, actually, I don't exactly, it's it's about farming in, in general, about. It's it's vague. Yeah. It's vague. It's not really made clear. But of course, in the evening, again, Sergey just wants to talk, just wants to explore things. And Two bros. They're just, they're just bros being bros. Bros being bros. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they have a lot of conversations about the idea of peasant communes and how society should move forward classic tolstoy stuff it goes on for a long time i'm not gonna just do a point 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 of the argument because it doesn't really matter should we do our own retelling of anna karenina but it's only the farming <laughs> scenes <laughs> <laughs> i would love that i would love that that would be funny the farming sin <laughs> And speaking of farming scenes, uh, Levin gets so mad that he has to have his brother there for weeks <laughs> at a time that he decides to go mowing. And we have a, it's actually only like two chapters, but it really feels like four or five chapters of him just mowing and describing an entire day of what it was like for him to try to get the hang of it and working with other peasants and, you know, how they act. It really is a play by play of this whole day. <laughs> yeah, do people hate this scene? This is like such a controversial one for people who like, come to Tolstoy 
without having read anything else or really knowing mm. what they're getting into. They're like, why aren't you talking about farming for like three chapters straight? Shut up, sit down, and listen to the goddamn farming scenes. It's important. <laughs> when Levin drinks the kvass that has grass and bugs in it, and he's like, wow, I'm so satisfied. More than any drink in the city has ever given me. That's what Tolstoy's writing about. <laughs> there's, there's no theme more important than food is better when you're doing physical labor. <laughs> this continues until Levin gets a letter from Steva, which, of course, only heralds good things. Yes. And Steva basically says... Hey, Levin, Dolly's not doing so hot. And I'm, of course, uh, at the races, so I can't do anything about that. Can you go help her out? And Levin is like, I guess, yeah, sure. I hate my brother and I want to get away, so let's go. And at that point, we switch over to Dolly's point of view. And you know how we said last time that after Anna convinces Dolly to make up with her husband, things just kind of get worse for her? Well, that's continued. Uh <laughs> oh, yeah. Good time. <laughs> it's gotten way worse. So they have a summer house, and it's pretty out of out of repair it's it's really just broken down everything's got something going on and when steva went out to go shooting with levin dolly asked him to get it fixed up for when they wanted to go there for the summer and steva says yeah yeah of course let me do that and after he, he sells the land gets the rubles shoot goes shooting with steva he goes to their summer house and he fixes up the outside and gets some nice trim and repairs a bridge and then as soon as everything from the outside looks good he he leaves uh, repairing nothing on the inside or any of the mechanical problems they had with their, uh, you know, the livestock there. So he's basically an HGTV developer, is it? Like, <laughs> Steva is the property brothers. <laughs> when the summer comes, Steva, of course, is not going to go to a lame place like a summer house. He stakes all the cash in the house in Petersburg and goes to the races, leaving Dolly to come find their summer house just trashed. <laughs> trashed by farm animals, trashed by disrepair. Everything's going wrong, and she kind of has a breakdown. And thankfully, their their nanny, Matriona, is very, 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 very well connected. She really gets things done. Like, within three days, she's made friends with all the important people in town to get them to help out Dolly and fix everything up, more or less. And at this point, Levin finally comes to see Dolly to, to kind of help her out, although Matriona's probably done everything important at this point in terms of fixing up the house. <laughs> All this really does is reinforce Dolly being bad at Steva because she's angry that he is getting other people involved in their domestic affairs to fix his problems, which is fair. He stays there for a few days. The The kids love Levin. Uh, apparently he's he's like he's the character who all the animals and children love because they can sense a good soul, even if that soul itself is troubled. Thanks for that archetype, Tolstoy. I'm just glad that Tolstoy didn't have to write any sex scenes where he was writing himself because he's such an egomaniac that I don't think I could handle it. <laughs> <laughs> because we'd have to learn that although Levin really is an intellectual, at the same time, he's also quite the lover, and Tolstoy probably would describe that. Oh, in an incredible excruciating detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So after Levin's been there for a few days, Dolly kind of sits him down and is like, hey, you know that thing, that time where you proposed to Kitty and Levin gets up and he gets agitated and is like, I can't believe you're talking to me about that. And she says, wait, no, calm down. Just hear me out. Men in society get to propose to women. They get to take their pick of the litter. Women in our society just have to wait there until someone proposes to them and then they take it on faith that it's going to be a good marriage because they don't have another choice. And Levin's like, I guess you're right, but I'm going to refuse to acknowledge this. Uh, and she says, so... When you proposed to Kitty, keep in mind, she had been seeing, seeing Vronsky every single day for months and months and months, and he was obviously courting her, whereas you 
although she's known you for a long time, disappeared for months and months, and then she came back out of nowhere to propose to her, you can see why maybe you would choose Vronsky's proposal in that situation too, right? And Levin's like, <laughs> just refuses to acknowledge that point. <laughs> poor Dolly. Poor, poor Dolly. Poor everyone in this story. Yeah. And Levin gets really angry and just leaves and just well, refuses to acknowledge Dolly's point that Kitty's Kitty is <laughs> Kitty's not doing so hot. And she kind of is uh, telling him that, you know, if you try again, she might say yes at this point. Wink, wink. And Levin's like, no, that part of my life is over. I could never after I I could not stand to be rejected and, you know, try again. I have to find new avenues like mowing. Basically the same thing. <laughs> So he goes back to his estate to get back to, to mowing again, but he finds out that his peasants have actually been cheating him, although they kind of all, you know, they have this big scene where he goes and he's chatting with everyone and they all kind of deny it more or less. And he's he's feeling a little bit lost until he's just hanging out in the fields at night and he begins to feel like, wait, maybe I do have an idea of what I should be doing, which is a train of thought that only goes as long as until he sees Kitty going by in a carriage that night and then everything falls apart again. <laughs> Uh, he's a he's a fickle man. Bonk. Levin goes to horny jail. <laughs> <laughs> it's at this point that we rejoin uh, Karenin. And it, it very much is Karenin, although Anna is there at this point. It, it's really just about his life following the revelation, really, and him thinking about how things have kind of changed. Really, he's basically begun throwing himself into his work. That's all that he's he's doing now. He's he's entirely focusing on his committees and laws, and we spend this entire chapter more or less just focusing on the committee he's trying to start and committees he's trying to oppose, and him going over the calculus of what should I do next? Do I divorce her? Do I separate from her? Do I just pretend this didn't happen? Because you know, if if I divorce or if I get separated, this could be ammunition against me. We're really getting a better insight into into Karenin's character that the thing that concerns him most really is. No longer Anna. She and, and his son are basically dead to him at this point. <laughs> the only thing he really cares about is his position on the council and whether or not his enemies could use this against him. I don't see why everyone hates on the Levin farming scenes, but no one's out here talking about the Karenin committee scenes. Far more <laughs> boring. Far more boring. I would 100% be behind that. There, There's a point where I guess this is supposed to be like a joke, but you, he's kind of... Tolstoy is kind of writing as if he is Karenin and he kind of make notes that Karenin is making an, a list and then it begins to be like an entire paragraph, which is like considering that one in parentheses, this, two, three, four, five, six, and considering directives number 17,015 and 18,038, this, this, and that relating to the farming techniques of people in these areas. I don't see why anyone could hate on the 11 farming scenes in comparison to that, which are, which are in comparison quite relaxing and kind of nice to read. <laughs> This just makes me feel like I'm an undergrad again, which is not a good feeling. At this point in the story, Corinne is, of course, back in Petersburg. However, Anna is still out in their summer house out by Petersburg. And she's kind of thinking, what do I do next? Because she kind of was hoping that he would immediately divorce her, because that would kind of make the path clear for her. But Corinne didn't. And so she begins to think about what would life be like with him after that? And she thinks this is absolutely untenable. And so she writes him a letter that she's going to be leaving, and she's taking her son with her. And she's not sure, certain if that's legal, but it is what she's going to do. However, she doesn't actually send it. And before she can even really think about what she should do next, she gets a letter from Karenin, which is basically laying out to her, here is what you're going to do. Because he does not want to create a scandal, so he's telling her, I want you to do this, this, and that. Come back to Petersburg, act the part of my wife. 
you'll get certain privileges, you know, your son, and at this point forward, Suryoja is always your son, it's never Karenin's son, will basically not be thrown out into the street. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I think, uh, you can conjecture what awaits you and your son if you don't do this, basically. So he's, he's very, the threat here is very on the surface. Instead of going right back to Petersburg, Anna goes to visit a, a party with Princess Betsy, who she kind of wanted to avoid, but really can't. The most important thing about this party is basically that she ends up meeting Vronsky there, and they leave, not together, separately, but with the intention to meet up, and Vronsky's super excited. He's like, I feel light as air, I'm running through, the best parts of my life, and then he actually meets up with Anna, and she's like, so, my husband's not gonna divorce me. And he's like, well, you should do that anyway. And she said, no, I, I've got to protect my son, basically. So I can't. We have to figure something out. And they don't really come to a conclusion on that one, essentially. Through this part, we also follow Vronsky's life and find out a lot of things about him and his day-to-day -day life. The only important thing is that a, a comrade of his uh, has become a, a general and actually calls Vronsky and tells him, hey, Vronsky, I'm looking to start a political party because we need an independent party. And independent for them means a party of people who are independently wealthy so they can't be <laughs> bought off to give them the appearance of being unable to be bought off by opposition, essentially. And he tells them, hey, it's really cool to have things you want in your life, like a woman you love, but it's kind of distracting. And if you want to come into my party, which could give you a position in life because Vronsky, although he is very rich, doesn't actually have access to most of his money, so he's not really as rich as most people think he is, and he's actually kind of hard up for, for promotion in society, which his, his friend kind of uses as kind of a, a little dangling carrot and saying, you could definitely advance in my party, but you can't really do that with a mistress, so you're going to have to decide, essentially. After this meeting between Anna and Vronsky, she goes back to Petersburg, and she tells him that um, they basically come to agreement that they will do, they will do with basically his plan. Meanwhile, we get back to the important part of the book, which is Levin. <laughs> after, <God>. seeing, <laughs> after seeing Kitty, he's having another minor breakdown. <laughs> and even when Dolly tries to basically set Levin and Kitty up for another meeting by asking him for a saddle, and she asks, says, hey, it would be really nice if you could bring the saddle to us. He just sends it to her by courier and, and doesn't include a note <laughs> or anything. <laughs> I like that she's like basically subtweeting him in like a 19th century equivalent, and he's just the worst. I like sometimes I think Tolstoy really endowed himself with like like he gave himself too much credit maybe when he was writing uh, his own character, and then other times I'm like, wow, you really nailed it right on the head. <laughs> 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 yeah if you're gonna make a character your own avatar and then also basically make him one of the pettiest bitches in the book I I'll, I'll give you credit for that yeah yeah respect yeah absolutely respect so Levin is just torn up by the fact that Kitty is within 500 miles of him <laughs> so he decides to go <laughs> visit a friend of his uh, Sv Sviazhki yeah, I think that's how you pronounce his name yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can probably <laughs> Glad we both spent years studying this language. Uh, <laughs> on the way to see his friend, he stops at the home of a obviously wealthy peasant whose farm is in tip-top shape. And he's like, wow, how'd you do this? And the guy's like, well, if you're a landowner, you really can't rely on hired men because they're always going to kind of cheat you or not really going to do the work. If you want to have a functional farm, you basically it's going to have to be your farm and you're going to have to be doing it with your family, essentially, which plants some seeds in Levin's mind. Which really come begin to, to grow when he goes to see Sviazhki. And the more the important thing to know about Sviazhki is that he's a very good nineteenth century liberal. He's got all the right views, he's saying everything correctly. However, that being said, 
Um, Sviashki does not live at all like he talks. He talks like a 19th century liberal, but he lives like an 18th century landowner, essentially. And he's got kind of an ironic manner about him. Well, at Sviashki's house, uh, and also Sviashki is trying to marry off his uh, wife's sister to Levin. This is probably the funniest scene of the entire book to me. Like, nothing ever talks about this. It's so funny. It's so funny. Tell tell the people about the funniest scene in perhaps what chapter the entirety is it? of it. Because I want to read some quotes from it if I can, but I okay. can't remember where yeah. it was. Yeah, basically he's just uh, <laughs> you know proving to himself that he's not going to be seduced by this woman. <laughs> uh, it's something that I, I pass every time and I laugh at it, but I never mark it because I know it's not really important. Uh, yeah. and I know that I'm like, ah, oh, we probably wouldn't talk about this on the podcast. But then, of course, <laughs> <laughs> of course we do. The, the quote I want to talk about, I can't remember where I found it, but well, I, I mean, let me just take a guess at what you were th- remembering. Read it to me. Uh, so, <laughs> so Sviashki's, uh sister-in-law, who the Sviashki is trying to get Levin married to, she's wearing a, a kind of a low neckline. He imagined, probably mistakenly, that he had had no right to look at it. Her low neckline and tried not to look at it but he felt that he was to blame for the very fact of the low-necked bodice having been made oh i don't know there's so many lines <laughs> here i think it could, it could have been any of them yeah it goes on for like quite a while if i'm not mistaken yeah like longer than it should have like i know it's a long book but hey in short there is an entire page dedicated to this woman's like low neckline and her quote white bosom uh who's Whose, whose very whiteness deprived Levin of the full use of his faculties. Um, <laughs> that was the one. That was the one. <laughs> it's all coming back. And he, he says he keeps trying not to look at, try not to look down at her neckline, but he feels that no matter how much he stares into her eyes, he can't help but feel that really he's looking at her neckline. This is like, I feel like a, this is a thing for Tolstoy, like temptation. It's in Anna Karenina. It's in War and Peace. It's just, it's everywhere. I don't like it, but it's there. But rarely is it just, <laughs> rarely is it just, I was struggling to not look at this woman's cleavage, but that's said over the course of an entire page. Oh, I'm pretty sure he does it in War and Peace as well. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For our next series. <laughs> <laughs> Horniness in War and Peace. <laughs> yeah, it's an extremely funny scene that I'm sure no one ever talks about because it doesn't really matter, but it is very funny. It's the horny jail scene. <laughs> What follows next is far less funny as Levin, Sviashki, and the other people at the dinner table begin to discuss how to properly run a farm. And although Sviashki is talking like, a, of course, a, a well-read liberal at the time, the other two who are there are just very much in favor of serfdom and kind of believe that everything in Russia went to hell after the end of serfdom. Although Sviashki kind of assumes that Levin will be on his side, Levin is kind of like, well, actually, I don't agree with them, but they're right in some ways, which surprises Sviashki in that Levin actually finds himself kind of closer to their views than he does to Sviashki's, you know, well-read liberalism, which Levin really doesn't care for. After this conversation, in, in conjunction with meeting that wealthy peasant before, who's doing very well and basically told Levin that if you want a man to work a, the land, it has to be his land. It, it can't just be anyone just trying to produce something. It's got to be something that people feel ownership of, and then they will look out for their own interests. And if you're working on a farm with other people who are also kind of own it, You'll all look out for your interests, basically uh, what you might understand as a commune. And he he has this great new agricultural theory, and for the next couple of chapters, he's just super excited about his new theory, which he's like, is going to save Russia. No, it's going to save the world. This revolutionizing of looking (laughs) at the peasant as not just a peasant, but as the Russian peasant, and we're going to have Chinese socialism with Russian characteristics. And (laughs) uh, 
yeah, he's just really having a good time until his brother Nikolai comes and his brother Nikolai is very, very obviously dying, but Nikolai does not admit it. And they have some very awkward conversations about Levin's new ideas, which Nikolai tells him is just socialism without any of the things that make socialism good. And that kind of puts a damper on Levin's mood. Then they argue so much that Nikolai, despite the fact that he's dying, decides to take off. And Levin ends this part of the book just thinking about death. Good stuff. Good, great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, darkness had fallen upon everything for him. But just because of this darkness, he felt that the one guiding clue in the darkness was his work. And he clutched it and clung to it with all his strength. Sounds like a YA novel. <laughs> And so that in about 20 short minutes is part three of Anna Karenina. So it really wasn't that good of a part, I gotta be honest. I feel like parts one and two are kind of a banger, and this is kind of the, the lull that, that people get hung up on. It is it is absolutely a lull in this book, but I kind of enjoyed it because of that. The fact of, of Levin just kind of having a lot of crises and considering a lot of things is kind of what draws me into it. Also, him being just the pettiest person in the world is so funny to me. <laughs> I just feel like for me, when you're talking about like a classic book of literature, you like you as a reader don't get to get to decide how to make it better. You yeah. don't get to be like, oh, if only Tolstoy had taken this part. You're like, you're not Tolstoy. You don't get to decide <laughs> what would make it better. That's why you haven't written anything important. Uh, so anyways. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, how do you take walk away from this? Because I know you say you've got obviously the background of what many other people say. But how do you personally kind of walk away from this this part of the book? I think that this is a is probably one of the more important parts, actually, despite the fact that like you know it's not as exciting, um, because a lot of the book really is about kind of a search for meaning. That's what dominates both of the plot lines uh, for Anna and for Levin, and so they they achieve them kind of in in different means, but spiritually, actually, in a in a similar sense, kind of the search for sincerity in all aspects of life, not just love, not just you know, housekeeping, uh, but how it all, how it all kind of comes together. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is probably, this is a low point for Levin, I think. You know, he doesn't, he's got no one to love. His brother's dying. Uh, it's just, yeah. Even you the know? people who are kind of close to him, like Dolly, who is very much like, hey, I'm on Kitty's side, but if you want to maybe marry her, here's what you should wink, wink, nudge, nudge, do. And he's just angry at her, essentially, after that. So yeah. he's pushing, yeah, to your point about it, he's he's pushing everyone away. And the only saving grace for him, really, or him personally, is just his ideas, his his new agricultural idea. Mm -hmm. I think that is also, it's a good a good part for <laughs> for the Karenin simps in the chat. If anyone's uh, <laughs> sympathizing with Karenin at, at the moment, I think they kind of, I don't know. It's just really boring in this part. And I think that's like part of the point. <laughs> you really get the sense of why someone might want to leave a man who can't think about perhaps the biggest emotional devastation of his life without relating it to how will this affect me in my committees? Literally. There's that. And then like, can I do the spark notes bashing? Yeah, please do the spark notes bashing. So like, okay, spark notes, like summary is fine. It's whatever. Uh, if you don't want to read all 900 pages, I guess it's, it will give you some plot points. You're missing the point if you read just the plot points, but. You really are, but that's fine. Uh, well, it's not fine, but it's fine. <laughs> um, the the analysis, I almost like, I'm like, do you really understand what's happening here? Like, if you read the analysis, I guess maybe it would be fine for like a high school um, English paper, which is about 
<laughs> no offense, Park. No, it's a little <laughs> bit what it's geared for. Like uh, anything else, you should really come to your own conclusions. And particularly the uh, first part of part three, where Spark, <laughs> Spark Notes says, and I quote, Tolstoy shows us some of the unexpected and seemingly contradictory aspects of Vronsky's character. Okay, I'll let you continue. Though Vronsky's methodical accounting practices appear to be at odds with his devil-may-care image, we see that they are as integral to his character as his wild horse racing style. On the whole, Tolstoy suggests that Vronsky is perhaps as much of a stickler for rational systems as the other Alexei. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, let me find the quote for a second. I have, yeah. I have this one. Yes, please do. For his, um, his rational system, as they call it. <laughs> All right, so I will quote to you Vronsky's system of principles, which Sparknotes deems a rational system, the invariable rules that it lays down. One must pay a card shark, but need not pay a tailor. One must never tell a lie to a man, but one may lie to a woman. One must never cheat anyone, but one may cheat a husband. One must never pardon an insult, but one may give one. And so on. Uh, and then the narrator notes the principles were possibly not reasonable and not good, uh, but they were with unfailing certainty as long as he adhered to them. Uh, and, and it's, you know, notes at the end with some irony that Vronsky had become to feel that his code of principles did not fully cover all possible contingencies <laughs> and to foresee into the future. Uh, difficulties and perplexities for which he could find no guiding clue. No shit. <laughs> like... Also, just for the accounting process, keep in mind, we didn't really dive into this because it's not that important unless you're really trying to understand his character, but he does his accounting once a year and it is only to figure out how in the hole he is financially. His accounting practice is, what debts do I need to pay now? What debts can I pay later? And what debts can I safely never pay? <laughs> Which is a system, I, I'll give you that. But I don't think you could call doing your finances once a year and a whole category of only three categories is just, I'm going to ignore these ones. Could really be called rational. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can compare... Vronsky and Karenin, or to like suggest that they're the same in that way, personally. I mean, like Karenin's entire days, like hours and minutes are structured by his administrative duties and what he's doing. Vronsky, again, once a year, he'll fit in some time to look at like how much he owes people. A process he prepares for by locking himself in a room, not not bathing and not shaving, um, which I do almost every day. So that's an unfair attack on me, but... <laughs> Except for the bathing part, I I do shower. I uh, just don't shave. Gonna make that clear. Do good clarification. <laughs> it just took you a little too long to add it. So I, you know. I'm gonna edit. I'm gonna edit down the silence to make it shorter. <laughs> good. Good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I think there's something you said for a comparison between the two, but a very literal like they're exactly the same person based on their rational principles is not it. Yeah, it, it was. Something. So anyways, that's my rant on Spark Notes. Don't read the analysis, just read the book. <laughs> but I guess that defeats the point of Spark Notes. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hey, we're back to where we started. <laughs> so how about those reforms? Yeah. <laughs> Already having read um Tolstoy's What Is to Be Done, that the like Inner Karenina and Levin's thoughts, at least to me, are basically just he's having them and there are pages and pages of what's vaguely his idea, but it's not really a coherent system in any sense. You cannot walk away from this understanding this is the coherent philosophy. Rather, Tolstoy suggests the existence based on certain principles of 
you know, peasants owning the land or at least peasants working the land and, and getting the, the share of their crops, really more so than laying out a coherent system, which Tolstoy kind of does in what is to be done. So this feels like a, a fictionalization of, of things that he's actually, I don't remember when what is to be done is published, but either will lay out elsewhere or already has laid out elsewhere. I think it's pretty far after this. Okay. But it's interesting. I, I was thinking a little bit more because I've mentioned this book before and I, I quote it. Oh, I don't quote it. I'll talk about it just because I've read it for class. Uh, Gary Saul Morrison's book, Anna Karenina and Our Time, Seeing More Wisely, has a section on reforms and why they do or don't work, which I thought was interesting because uh, it kind of takes some of the... A lot, a lot of the book is taking lessons from Anna Karenina and as the title suggests, talking about how we can see more wisely kind of in our own time. And he actually <laughs> like links it to um, kind of like international relations and political science and uh, reforms and whatnot, even in the modern era, uh, and why those reforms kind of do or don't work. And it's, it's kind of a complex and I can't do it justice on the podcast here, but I think that Levin kind of notes some of the difficulties when he's trying to implement a lot of these like western reforms on his farm uh and there's kind of this thing that comes up that i think sometimes if you're in like an intro level russian lit class they're like look at it there's some fatalism over here uh <laughs> where, like things just don't work out not to anyone's fault but that is a like kind of a product of of moving too fast on things that like peasants are not ready for basically so when he's talking about those kind of like national characteristics or situation specific characteristics, I think he really is actually onto something yeah. uh, about that. It's not like <laughs> it really it kind of like strikes a chord of a humanity social science debate going on today, even which is that, you know, can there be just perhaps one methodology, one strategy, one system that you can just plop, plop, plop uh, down onto everywhere, uh, which Tolstoy says no. And no. I also say no for the record. <laughs> and Gary Saul Morrison says no. So I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, Gary Saul Morrison has solved it for the human race, and so we know we're on the right <laughs> side of history. That's right. Yeah, I think that that is one of the, of the many features which are a little bit vague, that is one of the things which Tolstoy, through Levin, is very specific on. Eventually, begins writing not for the idea of the peasant as, at a whole, as a whole, but uh, writes for the, the Russian peasant. And after walking away from that conversation with the, the landowners and also the, the successful peasant, what he realizes is perhaps I've been to... Yeah, I've been trying to uh, take in the European system too much. And the conclusion he comes to is, I actually should not be just taking my peasants and telling them, oh, you should use this machinery, which is really advanced. And like, just go from doing this by hand to doing this by machine. And instead, I should find intermediary things, things that are a little bit closer to what they are familiar with. So even though the system is not the most rational, not the most efficient, as we know can exist today, it will be something that they will be able to actually integrate into their lives. And the fact that they actually do it makes it on the whole a superior system to a more rational, more efficient system, which isn't actually practiced. Which is an interesting and kind of challenging idea, I guess, in terms of if you were looking to change something. And he specifically is looking to kill the the field of political economy, which I'm all in favor of. Uh, <laughs> um in replace with the a different understanding of the labor force and how to change how things are done and how to make a more equitable, more efficient system. I, I do think it's an interesting idea if you were to try to adapt that to modern politics and policies. That's why I kind of think when people say, though, this is a boring chapter or like, you know, I don't get the farming stuff. I think you're largely missing a, actually quite a big chunk of Anna Karenina. 
even if it is even if it is objectively a little bit more boring than the other parts i still think it's important and is worth discussing and reading about because these are definitely the parts that like anything else is going to skip over yeah because it's not a plot point in and of itself it's part of a larger search or quest which is one important for the story and understanding the story as a whole, as a compilation of plot lines. And it's also important for kind of under understanding Tolstoy in his own time, who's also going through one of his many spiritual crises uh, at this point in his life as he's writing, as is kind of Russia, I would argue, as a whole, trying to figure out like what in the world to do after the abolition of serfdom. Uh, there's a lot of searching going mm-hmm. on, and that's, a, that's really key to understanding like why people do things in this book. Right. And I, I was kind of joking earlier when I said that the meaning of Tolstoy's book can be really be founded when to properly enjoy Kavas, but I'm also kind of not. There's nothing that quiets <laughs> Levin's mind in this entire book except for a day of physical labor. And he feels awkward. It, there is some reflection on what it's like to be a landowner among all the among his peasants. But that being said, this is the only point in the book where he is quiet of mind and just enjoying things and looks around and sees people who are just living life and you know, you're working the land, and in the afternoon, your sons come out and bring you kvass and bread, and you sit down, and you have some vodka and have a good time, and then someone tells you, hey, if we can get this done by the end of the day, let's have vodka tonight. And then everyone's like, hell yeah, let's do it. And they figure out pretty good ways of doing things quickly, if it means they can <laughs> they can finish and go party with their families faster, which is the one of the few moments of quietness of mind, I guess. There's no neurotic, what should I do? I'm going to disappoint people. It's just kind of a quiet community working together. And that's the only point in this book where you have just self-satisfaction with life, really. And I think that is intentional and is important in its own way. Yeah, it co- it'll be carried through to the conclusion, more or less, as we'll talk about. I, I don't think anyone would uh, say that Levin's farming conclusions are a spoiler to them. So that's, <laughs> you know, I think okay, okay to mention. Right, yeah. How do you... Okay, continuing our commentary on Steva... <laughs> I mean, I, I guess we've already kind of stated our, our, our stance on Steve, but it just continues to be true here, just in long form of what it's like to be Steve, just hanging out with his buds, taking all his family's cash and <laughs> leaving I them. I would honestly, like, maybe it sounds bad or crass to say, but man, would I love to be Steve. Like, you don't have to do anything. No one, everyone loves you and you do everything wrong, like objectively wrong. Like, Tolstoy wrote a story about moral nuance, I think, except for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> except but with the exception of the fact that steve is the character that everybody likes the most yeah so you know isn't that something uh everyone loves to you know condemn anna for one action and steve does everything wrong all the time and everyone loves him <laughs> the only person who doesn't love him is his own wife and children but hey but hey <laughs> maybe it's kind of base to compare um one of the world's greatest works of literature to a cartoon but there is a I know you like BoJack Horseman. I've been known <laughs> on occasion to partake. <laughs> What's that line? Uh, eventually you realize that everyone loves you, but nobody likes you. That's Steva. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Mm. It's different with the BoJack reference. <laughs> Steva's BoJack changed my mind. <laughs> Steva's mid-career BoJack. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he might be one day we'll find steva in his own house struggling with a crippling clam addiction i yeah it would probably be that would probably be about right (laughs) but yeah i just you know the the part that you mentioned earlier about steva readying the summer home pretty much pretty much goes to the core of of steva which is 
all appearance, no substance. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, when he hears get something ready, it's make it look pretty. It's not. First of all, not only does he not think about domesticity and household things like that, you have to have running water or, you know, he or whatever. <laughs> Uh, like i don't think he even knows that these things exist that there are these aspects to life that exist and help support him he just you know it's just so not part of him as a character right yeah as opposed to dolly who is kind of the embodiment so to speak of the archetypal suffering russian woman who has nothing but the day-to-day support systems of a working stove running water etc etc who is just oof She's just out here suffering. Yeah, she really is. So I do think it's interesting that Tolstoy chose to make Steva and Anna brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, I don't know. I, I think I mentioned this before, the way that Tolstoy writes families and that they all kind of have these similar characteristics mm-hmm. or they have things that, you know, you can look at them and be like, that's a family as opposed to just a last name. Right. I, I don't have anything really specific to, to comment on here. I just, going forward, let's say that's, Something interesting to ponder. Yeah, absolutely. When they start to all interact a little bit more. I thought it was really um, just sitting on Dolly for a second, although she's not a huge part of this section of the book. I thought it was kind of interesting that Tolstoy almost approaches sort of a feminist criticism of their society when she's laying out to Levin what it's like to be a woman. And then they kind of blow past that and never talk about it again. But it was a really interesting thing <laughs> that uh, and she's kind of explained the mentality of, hey, you know, as, as a, a woman in upper class imperial russian society you basically live on faith that whoever is courting you is going to be a good person and not just someone who's fronting for your family so that's the life we live with so just to clue you into that one levin things are not super secure for us no matter how stable our lives may seem from the outside as as rich people though wouldn't it be funny if this was um self-reflective instead of absolutely not for tolstoy uh, <laughs> when <laughs> when when he was courting his wife and the family thought that they were, he was going to go for the sister that was like the middle sister uh and instead he married the younger one ha 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 biography is the only biography i've ever enjoyed reading because i'm just like what is this man's life <laughs> like even for a, a 19th century aristocrat it was wild yeah <laughs> even the family was like i think she's a little bit young for you nope <laughs> Which, for like a 19th century Imperial Russian family, is saying something. Yeah, it is. But I digress. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any other major things you took away from this section of the book? I don't think so. I think I'm pretty solid in my farm commentary. The most important thing here. I guess there, there is, I do want to point out the the opportunity that uh, Vronsky's former comrade brings to him. uh, Just because that's an interesting commentary in Russian society, the way he lays out his 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 vision of an independent party and that's something you should kind of read for yourself because it, it's a it's long and complex but it's interesting and the implications and just keep that in mind for what comes next absolutely okay well before we totally wrap up cameron on a scale from one to yeltsin how drunk are you uh well this uh golden god was extremely flavorful uh don't still mm. don't care for the name it, uh, I'm pretty certain that's what they call Dennis, and it's always sunny. I, I think so. I was but, just gonna say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it does it does make me feel like what I imagine Dennis from It's Always Sunny feels like on a daily basis. Um, so I'm at a solid, you know, four or five. How about you? I'm at a really, I'm at a really content five. Nice, you know. Yeah, I was enjoying talking about the farming scene. <laughs> <laughs> just gonna pop some brewskis with the bros and talk about farming. That's it. Just a couple <laughs> bros and their farms. Nothing else. 
when we complete this book, can we just let's just have some brewskis and play Farming Simulator? I've been wanting to buy Farming Simulator for <laughs> longer than you've been alive, pal. <laughs> All right, it's a date then. <laughs> Patreon only. <laughs> well, speaking of patrons, we actually next week are going to be reading something that was requested yes. by our patrons. A little while ago, but we're finally getting around <laughs> to reading some Solzhenitsyn. We're going to be reading the short story Matryona's House. So stay tuned. It's actually a, well, I would say fun. It's depressing, but in a way, it's kind of fun if you don't think about it. <laughs> it's kind of fun if you enjoy challenging yet thoroughly saddening topics. Yes. Well, that's the podcast. <laughs> 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 but... uh before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting is not free, and grad school, really, I don't know why I would why I would have expected it to pay any better, but it doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.